Bonjour. I'm Terrence Galenter, your American friend in Paris, coming to you almost live and almost every week from Café Terrence in Paris's Troisième Arrondissement. This program is being sponsored by a generous contribution from the Billy Cohn Collection. Eric, uh, good morning. Good morning, Terrence. Do I sound okay? You sound great. Okay. You, sound, you, sound, you sound like you're right. <laughs> I, I think <laughs> you don't. You don't sound like Melissa Clark. I can tell you that. That's for sure. For sure. <laughs> kind of bubbly. Uh, before we get started, I, I got. I guess two quick questions. Uh, I understand Wesleyan, but explain to me uh, University of Texas. Um, they gave unless me... it's of interest to my my listeners. <laughs> yeah, they gave me the most money to come. Okay. All right. I had nothing to do with a Robert Carroll, who probably worked for your father. Um, no, um, and yeah, I guess I guess Carroll was probably studying there then or researching. But yeah. uh, I believe I was there before any of the books came out. He was still riding on the the tide of of the power broker, probably. Right. Yeah, and and the money with that, he was able to actually, uh, I think, pay for his time there. And then one uh, one final thought before we get started: uh, since your grandparents were in the candy store business, did this influence your interest in uh, in beverages and uh, hospitality? Uh, uh, I don't think so. You know, they uh, had retired before I before I ever knew them. So I see. You know, I never had the the direct benefit of having a candy store in the family. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, okay, and let's uh, so except that my father made very good egg creams. Well, there you go. There's an art, and he probably got you tickets to the uh, U.S. Open at Beth Page. Um, the U.S. Open at Forest Hills, different open. Oh, you're a tennis player, not a golfer. Exactly. Okay, why don't we get started? Uh, my guest today is uh, Eric Asimov, uh, nephew of Isaac, but probably from a journalistic perspective, he got his chops from his father, Stanley, who was a, a major editorial vice president, Long Island Newsday, for many years. You got your start at the Chicago Sun-Times. How did that come about? Um, well, I, I actually worked earlier than that at the Hartford Current. Ah. Um, and... Uh, in, in both cases, they were kind of uh, placeholding jobs for me as I figured out what I wanted to do with my, with my life. Um, I had just gotten back with my post-college um, European exploration. Uh, this was back in the early 80s, and you would get a two- or three-month URL pass and just um, travel all over and and you know live on a student budget sleep in hostels even union cafeterias and and things like that and were you drinking student uh, priced <laughs> wines uh exactly yeah and um when i returned i was applying to graduate schools and and needed to um figure out uh, needed to make some money so i i got a part-time job at at the hartford current which was not too far from where i had gone to to college and um you know i i knew about newspapers and journalism because i had grown up listening to my father talk about it at the dinner table every 
every night. And he had also taken the trouble to, to teach me how to write and edit, um, partly because he wanted me to go into journalism, uh, but, but also because he said whatever job I actually would, would go into, I would need to know that. Yeah, absolutely. Good, good training. Good, good instruction. And you went to the University of Texas in Austin uh, to uh, American Studies. Was that your major? Yes. And, um, you know, I... What does that, that com comprise? Because it, it was a major that didn't exist when I was a kid. I'm a little <laughs> bit older than you. you know, Not it, a lot. It, it's kind of a, a, a multidisciplinary subject. You're looking at history, literature, popular culture, really any element of culture, music, food, and, um, and, and using all of these strands to, to make grand generalizations about Americans. And at that time, I don't believe they were making much wine in Texas, which I think has changed. Not at all. Um, you know, they might have started then, um, but I was, I was not really aware of it or, or interested in wine from, from any point of view other than in drinking it. And, um, you know, by that, by the time I got to Texas, I, w I had already been obsessed with, with food. My, my parents had taken me to France for the first time when I was 14 years old. And, you know, I, I, I grew up in, in the seventies and, and Americans were still eating TV dinners and, and drinking instant coffee and, and, and that sort of, um, artificial uh, nourishment and yeah and, and wine was italian swiss colony and, and taylor manischewitz you know was that uh, your first glass of wine manischewitz no or Morgan I, david i remember um going to my my great aunt's house and and she always poured sherry mm. and uh harvey's cream sherry probably yeah probably, probably <laughs> harvey's bristol cream and, right, right. Um, you know, I remember as a kid, like always um, being fascinated by my parents' liquor cabinet and, and taking opportunities to just kind of smell everything that was in there. It was, um, you know, the different, the colored bottles and, and the labels, it, it all kind of fascinated me. Well, I suspect that your father, like my father, was probably drinking J&B or Cuddy Sark, maybe Chivas Regal. Uh, but uh, single malts had really not hit the American landscape yet. No, and and actually, my father was not much of a drinker. Um, you know, the I remember he would occasionally have a glass of Dubonnet, which was uh, you know some kind of uh, vermouth or something. And, and you know, once in a while, they on some um, ceremonial or celebratory occasion, they would have a glass of wine. But it really. You know, it was more there to serve guests. Mm -hmm. And you, anyway, you finally came home and, and got to the New York Times, I believe, in 1984? Well, you know, it was a, a circuitous route, I guess. I had, um, you know, I had gone to Texas, and the idea was to become an academic. But at, at that time in the mid-'80s, there was a lot of, uh, discussion about the the death of the liberal arts, and I just had this, I had this feeling that as as much as I was kind of um, uh, interested in, in in that field, I 
and I was good, but I wasn't great. And so I would never get my, my pick of jobs. I would always be chasing one year appointments somewhere that I didn't want to live. So I kind of, um, uh, chickened out of the academic track and, and again, I needed to, to figure out what to do with my life. And, you know, I, I felt like journalism was a skill, but not a passion for me, um, so I could get a job and, and decide what I wanted to do. I got a job in, in Chicago at the Sun-Times. And about three weeks after I, I had gotten that job, Rupert Murdoch bought the newspaper. <laughs> and th there was a provision in the union contract there that said when there was a change of ownership, um, and if you left the newspaper, you would get some sort of enormous severance payment depending on your seniority. So there was there was a huge rush to the to the exit of all these people who had been at the Sun Times forever, and suddenly uh, somebody like me, who was you know twenty five years old and 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 completely inexperienced, was put in the position of doing jobs that I had no training for. So I, I was really learning on the spot, but within a, a, a matter of months, it, it became really untenable for me to work for a, a Rupert Murdoch newspaper. So I, I started, I, I thought I would, on a whim, apply for a job at my hometown newspaper and was kind of surprised when I got a job there. So yeah, I went to the Times in 1984. Yeah, too bad you don't have more time because Chicago is a, a great town. And had I, I been love a, Chicago. I mean, it to was, this day, yeah, it was so much fun. It had great restaurants it, and uh, great music, a, a wonderful cultural scene. Cold winter, but um, but I I could I could stand it. Not cold is you're being you're being generous. <laughs> Unbearable is the word that comes to mind. I've been there in January, so I no, it, I it was feel crazy like and. I just, you know, I have this this memory of Lake Michigan freezing with, you know, in mid waves on the on the shore. It was, you know, things just went like boom, and um, yeah, it it, it was kind of crazy cold. So you get you get to New York, uh, and but you you didn't actually you grew up on the island, right? You didn't grow up. In, I, I grew up in Nassau time. County. Yeah. Right. 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 An Islander fan, I would suspect. You know, I, I was one of those kids from um, from Long Island that couldn't wait to leave. It was just, um, you know, it was it it was not for me. I didn't fit in, and um, you know, I had I I just I wanted to be in in New York City. I I wanted to be anywhere else. I could easily have lived in Austin the rest of my life or in Chicago, but. Uh, but New York City really felt like home. The, the funny thing about Chicago is they, they had such an inferiority complex to New York, which I guess comes from years of being called the second city. So, you know, they always measured themselves in, in relation to New York. Well, now they might be the third city. so they can Third or fourth, that. really. <laughs> Still a yeah. great place, though. Oh, it's phenomenal. The architecture of the, uh, yes. you know, in those days you had all, you had the great the department stores, Carson Perry Scott and Marshall Field. And I know it was a, a phenomenal town. Uh, it's still, it's still to me, is a wonderful, I have wonderful memories of the few occasions when I was there. 
were you, uh, was Abe Rosenthal your overall boss? When you a, Abe time? Rosenthal was the executive editor. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, a, I mean, I was hired as a, as a low, lowly editor in national news. <laughs> I had very little to do with him except um, one time, I think maybe a year after I had gotten to the New York Times, my, my uncle was um, awarded a, a medal at Ellis Island for being a, you know, an immigrant who had made good. And, um, you know, this was a huge ceremony and the whole family went there. And it turned out that, that Abe, who was Canadian, was also on the, the awards docket there. And so I, I must have passed him three or four times. And each time he was, you know, he was thrilled to see me and, and pump my hands and, and ask how I was doing. And that made me feel really great. And the, the next time I saw him in the newsroom, he just walked right by me, <laughs> didn't even recognize me. So I, I, it reinforced my status, I guess. Who was, I mean, Max Frankel might have been there. Who was probably the journalist that had the most impact on you or uh, mentored you with some degree at the time? Um, you know, I'm going to be honest and, and say really nobody. Um, you know, I, you're not that likable a kid. <laughs> no, but I, you know, I was, I was, um, I had my, my mind elsewhere. I, I was hired in national news, but, um, you know, unlike most of the, the young people who got hired at that time in, 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 at the New York Times, 1984, you know, there were a lot of people who, whose ambition was to, to cover the White House or um, politics in some fashion or international affairs. I was interested in, in food and wine. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, there were great journalists there whose work influenced me, whether it was somebody like, um, you know, Joe Lelyveld, who at that time was the um, South Africa correspondent, or, or Bill Keller, uh, who was... These are all former in, future in editors. Union, future editors who were, you know, great reporters. Um, but I was also interested in, in uh, Michi Kakutani, who... Uh, had not yet become, she was a culture reporter. She hadn't. Repeat that name. It's impossible to pronounce. Michiko Kakutani. Okay. Um, And Frank Pryle, who was the the wine writer. Mm -hmm. Your predecessor. Yes. And, but I I loved reading Pryle. And, um, you know, but once I got there, you know, everybody else's ambitions were pointed towards the Washington Bureau or whatever. I was pointed to the food department. And, um, you know, I started uh, uh, freelancing articles for them because I, I had a, uh, one of my early jobs at the Times was the late night national editor. So I would come in at 730 and uh, everybody else would leave. At 11:30, and my job was to stay until 3 a.m. just in case something happened. And you know, most of the time, nothing did. Every maybe 25 percent of the time, you get an adrenaline rush and have to get something into the the newspaper. So um, I decided I could use that time to write articles and and sell them to the food section and do my reporting during the day. And I, I started to to do that, and 
eventually, after uh, a, a few years, I went to work there full time. And well, you developed a, a, a concept called uh, $25 and under, which was possible to do in 1992. Uh, where that, was <laughs> that just a function of the reality of not having a lot of money and having to go out and find ways to finance dates at well, $25? You know, New York is a, is a great city for eating. We all know that. And, and the Times had one guy, it was uh, Brian Miller at the time, who was reviewing restaurants. And, and uh, whoever the restaurant's, restaurant critic was, um, you know, his or her eyes were set on the, on the top echelon. And there would be, you know, one review a week. And you just see this, you know, this swath of, of of great restaurants, but there was this entire uh, other element, this other part of, of the New York restaurant culture that was virtually ignored by the Times. And I had suggested several times that we really needed to cover it. And, you know, I was always kind of poo-pooed, you know, we, have, we don't want to dilute the critical voice of the New York Times and, you know, bullshit like that. And who who was the overall editor for that section? Um, well, her her name at uh, when I started freelancing was Margot Slade, um, and, but it wasn't her making the decision. You know, if they're going to add a restaurant critic's job, it th that comes from the highest echelon. Um, but you know, by 1992. Uh, you had a very competitive newspaper atmosphere. Newsday from Long Island had started a, a New York City edition, which was uh, actually a great newspaper. And that had, um, you know, put um, gotten the, uh, the New York Post and the Daily News to, to up their games somewhat. So you had this big tabloid war and they, they were all covering these sorts of, of restaurants and was Pete Hamill writing for Newsday a little bit at that time? No, this I think I think Pete Hamill was still with the Daily News or the or the Post. I don't remember. Probably the Post because I don't see him as being a Murdoch guy. Um, yeah, although he, you know, I know he was with the Post at some point, but um, you know that might have been earlier. Much uh, earlier, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so. You know, finally, the Times decided that in 91 that, you know, maybe this was an area they ought to explore, if only to kind of protect their their flank. And I was given the, the job and I started uh, reviewing these these restaurants in 92. And man, what a, a great job and a great um, education into New York City. And I realized like very quickly, this wasn't so much of a, a food job, but a, a cultural and, and demographics job where you, you know, you had to figure out, um, real, you know, the immigration patterns, people coming into the, the city and explore the, the, the neighborhoods where they would settle and the sorts of restaurants that they would open. Most of them, you know, just aimed toward their own communities, trying to recreate some element of, of the homes they had left. And, you know, it's a very, it's a very different experience when you are the, um, you know, when you are the outsider, uh, 
trying to learn something than you know when you're when you're completely immersed in your own culture. How did you go about uh, selecting places? And do you remember the very first restaurant you reviewed? Yeah. Um, well, you know, you would you would develop, and it it took a little while, but you develop a, a network of of sources of you know from people of of very different backgrounds and ethnicities that you that um, who I could talk to about what kind kinds of restaurants that were opening neighborhoods where where people were. Um, the very, the very first place I reviewed was called Green Avenue Grill. And this was a, a black owned restaurant in Fort Green, Brooklyn. And I went to Brooklyn Tech. I know the neighborhood. Well, so did my father. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 1964 graduate. Uh, he he <laughs> a little bit earlier. I think he must have been like 46 or, or something like that. Okay. But, um, yeah, he, so um, the idea was that first to, to do a restaurant that wasn't in Manhattan and that wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't just white people, essentially. Um, Were you the only white person in a restaurant when you went there? I don't, that I don't recall. Um, you know, Fort Greene was just in, in, in the beginning of its um, spike, Renaissance, days, I guess. I guess. Yeah. And you know, he had he had sort of given it publicity, and maybe it was beginning a, a, a early gentrification. Um, that I that I don't remember. Although mm -hmm. you know, I I have been there were plenty of restaurants where I was, you know, the only the only white person or the only person who was you know, not of the, the ethnicity of, of the restaurant. You weren't speaking Spanish yet? Um, <laughs> I'm still not. <laughs> but, um, you know, that, that's a really uh, um, fascinating and worthwhile experience. And, and I, I guess I've, I had had that experience many times, not least of which when I uh, I, when I was still in uh, graduate school and I, I had visited my girlfriend at the time who was in the Peace Corps in Cameroon. And um, I remember taking bus, what they called in the country bush taxis, you know, which you, you would take from one city to another. You would, you would uh, meet up at a marketplace. It wasn't like a formally scheduled means of transportation and and you'd get a, in this bus and they wouldn't leave until they they filled up it was really a, a you know like the back of a truck and they would have wooden benches down each side and one down the middle and when you thought it was full the uh, the truck would would take off and then jam on the brakes so everybody was compressed to the the front so they could squeeze in a few more people yeah. It was somewhat like that in Israel in the 70s. They had what were known as sharut, which were gifts from the German government, Mercedes. Right. And you would go from Haifa to Akko, and you would wait until you had enough people or eight people to fill up the cabin, and off you right. went. Right. And you shared the cost. Well, these were definitely not Mercedes, but, um, <laughs> you know, you'd be in that environment, and I would invariably be the only white person there. And, you know, people would be, like, looking at me or 
you know, making faces like I smelled bad or, you know, just well, probably, probably smelled different or smelled different. And did you speak French at the time? Or? Um, I, I, I spoke French badly then and I speak French badly now. <laughs> so I haven't really improved very much, but, um, yeah. So, I mean, you, you, I think that every person who's in a, in, in an ethnic majority should have that, that feeling, um, you know, to understand better how black people in America feel much of the time, you know, uh, we never white people in America don't have the experience or rarely do of being the only white person in a room. Black people have that experience all the time. And no, I think it's, I think it's very helpful. I, I totally agree, but it's like, it's impossible to get there. I mean, one can almost think of being Latino at some level. I, I always <laughs> describe myself as being from Argentina because I have blonde hair and blue eyes and I speak Spanish and they would buy that. But uh, it's kind of I can't pass for black. I've uh, I found a limit to my ability to uh, <laughs> assimilate into a culture. Well, even I can't you know, get away I'll tell you, even even when I was reviewing restaurants, I never tried to pass for anything other than than <laughs> than what I was. And I found, uh, you know, my best skill was uh, um, was fading into the woodwork when I when I needed to. That you know, it didn't work in certain kinds of restaurants where I stood out, but, you know, in other places, um, I, uh, there's, there's a lot of, um, anonymity that can be found by not calling attention to oneself. Of course, this was all in the, you know, the pre-smartphone era, uh, the pre-security camera era and, and, and people reviewing restaurants could still be anonymous in those days. You didn't have to put on a, a hat or a mustache or anything. Of that well, sort. you know, I always said that, um, you know, the the disguises were the were the last resort of of the attention starved. I mean, I you can always, I, in my experience, you can always see when somebody has a wig on or you know a fake beard or whatever. Going back to that that period of time, are there some restaurants that you uh, reviewed that have uh, continue to exist? Um, it's amazing the the percentage of restaurants that that have gone under, you know, from from the nineties. Of course, you know we're ta we're talking um, now from uh, in, in the period of of time that I was reviewing from ninety two to two thousand and four. I mean, that's almost you know, 25 to 30 years old, 20 to 30 years old. So it stands to reason that you wouldn't have a lot of them. But I mean, I still see occasionally, um, you know, the, the kind of yellowed newspaper review pasted to a window in a, you know, uh, a Korean restaurant on 32nd Street or, um, you know, some some Chinese restaurant in, in Chinatown. You kind of feel like Bruno Kirby and when Harry met Sally. When, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's a little—it's a little bit of a time capsule. It's crazy. But you know, you know, you know the reference. Um, <clears throat> well, he made some comment that, about that restaurants movie, being. Unfortunately, I only really remember one scene of it. <laughs> no, it was quite funny. But he apparently, this woman had read his stuff, and that was, and they were off to the races. 
they was thrilled that she knew it, and she was thrilled that she was actually having an opportunity to sleep with a writer. <laughs> so it, it, it worked out well for everyone. I won't ask you about your personal experience yes. in that score. Thank you. But let's go back to 2004. So now you become the wine critic at the New York Times. I mean, what the bona fides had you uh, established in that period <clears throat> uh, to justify getting that uh, post? Well, um, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if there were any, uh, except that I had been a um, e enormously interested in wine by that time for for twenty years, and um, had been writing about it for the time since since nineteen ninety nine. In addition to uh, reviewing restaurants, and um, you know, I. It, it was always kind of in the back of my mind. I had when I uh, went over to the food section in 1989, um, and I met Frank Pyle and and started to become friends with him. And it became evident to me that um, you know he he wasn't completely thrilled about being the wine writer, or at least he said he wasn't. Um, because it was regarded as as somehow kind of you know in the in the parlance of the 80s uh, it, it 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 was called it was considered effeminate you know something uh, uh, part of the t toy department he had been a, a foreign correspondent and and you know covered all all kinds of of conflicts and and things like that and I think you know, his friends were, were traipsing through the Khyber Pass, so um, he, he used to grumble about it. Um, and I thought, uh, I, I had a great idea. I said to Frank, why don't you take me under your wing and, and let me trail you for six months, introduce me to people, uh, um, teach me what you know, and then I can take over for you. And and you won't have to do this job anymore. And he didn't speak to me after that for like two months. Um, and I realized that, in fact, he really loved the job. And and of course, he was he was wonderful. I mean, he was a great writer and 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 super uh, smart and cultured, even if as he gave off the. Uh, you know, the, the feeling of being the everyman. And um, I, I kind of stepped back and I didn't want to be threatening to him. But um, but 15 years later, I did get offered the job. And, and the funny thing was, though, that at that time, I thought I was uh, being considered uh, for the next uh, to be the the next regular restaurant critic, um, not doing 25 and under, but the other job, which was coming open at the time. And as it was reconstructed later on, I had dinner with Bill Keller, who was the exec executive editor at the time. And I spent most of that telling him about a, a recent trip that I had taken to, um, to, to the Champagne region to write about uh, what then nobody had heard of the grower champagnes, and I, I spent so much time talking about it that he decided I should be writing about wine rather than about restaurants. That was great, and it wasn't and it wasn't like a plan in the back of your head, or was it? No, I, I thought I was, um, you know, I, I being amiable. 
I, I was thinking about the restaurant job at the at the time, and I didn't know that Frank was going to retire, even though, you know, he had been having health problems, and when he had to step back, I would sit in for him, and um, but I, it hadn't really occurred to me, and so I had to do kind of a, uh, you know, a, a pivot in my mind, and I I quickly realize that actually Bill Keller was was correct and this was something that was much more interesting to me than than continuing to review restaurants well you know I I just noticed I guess it was last week you uh, your obituary on Steven Spurrier not to be confused with the quarterback at the University of Florida right uh and then recently, uh, I had the, I had the great pleasure of meeting Lulu Tompier about twenty five years ago in mm-hmm. uh, in, in uh, Plan de Castellet. And of course, you can't talk about her without talking about Richard Olney and Kermit Lynch. Talk a little bit about those people before we go back and talk about your early what one should be looking for when one tastes a wine. Uh, the influence of those people on the wine yeah. community, particularly because Lulu and, and Kermit and, and Richard had such an impact on American. American wine tastes and developing uh, people like us who have an interest in wine. Well, I mean, you'd already had. Yeah, it. I I actually never met Lulu personally, but um, but Kermit, of course, I've met many times, and I considered his 1988 book, oh, the Adventures on the Wine Route, um, incredibly influential to me, and and in a lot of ways. Um, the I date the the beginning of the modern era of wine to the publication of that book, which which was um, uh, uh, prophetic in in outlining all of the 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 dangers that the wine industry was facing in the in the 80s uh, in terms of uh, moving to chemical agriculture and um replacing the the uh the heritage of winemaking with uh new technologies and and ways of manipulating wine and um really the 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 next 20 years after he published that book was kind of a a culture war between um those who were trying to um uh mechanize wine and those who realized that the best wines tended to be made, made with the least amount of, of manipulation. And, you know, if you think back to, to that time, people like, like Richard Olney and Alice Waters, who was also uh, part of that group, um, uh, Lulu Perrault, who, who's uh, kind of, uh, uh, Provençal lifestyle was was romanticized by by people like uh, Oli and and, um, and Alice and Kermit to a certain extent. But I used but, to buy I used to buy those wines, including the uh, the great Mauvedre, uh from Kermit uh, when I lived in the Bay Area. Ah, and uh, yeah. and I agree. I mean, I you know Saturday my wife and I would go. We would buy uh, we'd go next door and buy. Uh, uh, Acme bread made a wonderful sourdough. We'd buy a half a dozen loaves, cut them up for the kids' lunches for the week, uh, go in and have a, a cafe, uh, a cafe au lait at, at the cafe, cafe Fanny that she named for her daughter, and then buy a, a couple of bottles of wine with Kermit. 
Yes. And that was pretty much every Saturday. That was part of – and what I loved about his thing is that uh, he talks about, for example, uh, uh, Francois Zach at Claude Saint-Magdalene, where if you're, if you're living near Cassis, you want to drink the wine that came from that particular region. Yes. Don't, you know – don't do the American way of <laughs> buying big wines because they have big names. Well, that was the, the thing. Um, you know, all of those people uh, sort of uh, taught the country the, the importance of, of ingredients, of, of simple preparations, of uh, uh, local, locally grown produce, um, of, of naturally made wines. And they were just incredibly uh, influential uh, over the way that we think about food and wine now. And I, I always kind of group wine into, you know, into food. It's a food as far as I'm concerned. And it, and it belongs on the table. And, you know, they were against, um, you know, the, the pedestalizing uh, of, of wine, turning wine into a fetishistic object. And that's one of the great messages of, of Kermit's book. You know, it's just a beverage. It's just something you drink. You don't need to be uh, uh, afraid of it, intimidated by it. It doesn't need people um, issuing scores to tell you what you ought to drink. Um, just, you know. He would be the, the anti-Parker. Absolutely. And you know the the um, the whole movement at that that time was to just you know think of wine as as, as um, you know some some sort of luxury object um, you know something that you needed to to pay enormous sums of money because if you couldn't have what was the the greatest it wasn't worth it and and I think Kermit helped. Um, redefine what what was great yes um you know wine wine can be um mystical and and profound on on one end but it's also just a a a daily drink that is um you know intriguing and mystifying on that end uh, as well and every every occasion has a wine that is is perfect for that occasion and and the daily bottle in in many ways is more important than you know the the rarest most expensive bottle because that's what we that's what we drink and that's what we we should improve concentrate on improving rather than those um once in a lifetime experiences when you uh, a couple things when when you're tasting tasting the wine, just in general, what what is the first thing you look at apart from the color, obviously, to irrespective of what uh, what the cepage is. Well, you know, it depends what your what your purpose is. Um, you know, are you tasting a group of wines blind? Are you uh, just opening a bottle at at dinner? Um, you know, you, what I'm looking for is, is something that's, um, you know, and this is, this is rather hard to explain, but, but, but something that's, that's pure, um, something that's not, um, you know, a, a, 
adulterated or or manipulated in some way, which you can often tell just just through the aroma. Um, and then when you're when you're tasting it, you you're looking for the uh, again not, not to sound mystical, but you're looking for the the life of a wine. Is it is is it uh, alive? Does it feel energetic? It, does it um, is there some kind of of uh, force in in the wine, or is it just kind of um, dead? Like a, a soft drink, something that's going, that's inert and will just, um, you know, it's lost its body. stay on a on a shelf and 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 you know never change for years. Um, that's one of the, the the beautiful things about wine. Good wine is that it's a it's a living thing, and you know we all know that if you stick it in a cellar, it's going to change and evolve over the course of years. But it also um, changes uh, over minutes and hours in in a glass or or in a bottle and and um, sensing that change, tracking it, uh, whether it's over years or over an hour, is, is one of the most fascinating things about wine. Well, when a wine is a bouchonnet, as they say, uh, you know when you when you send the wine back, not because you want to be a wise guy and impress your girlfriend. Uh, <laughs> What are the what are, what comes up to you that hits you over the head and say this this wine is undrinkable? Well, uh, yeah, that's a uh, the the French word for corked, uh, which mm -hmm. occurs when you've got some sort of um, uh, it's a it's it we call it uh, TCA, which is a uh, abbreviation of the very long uh, chemical name for a uh, a substance that in microscopic uh, amounts can get into a, a cork and then infect the wine and give it just a really um, awful uh, aroma and flavor. It's been likened to uh, wet cardboard or, or wet newspaper. Um, but it can also... So it's pretty obvious. You don't need a great nose to detect it. Well, it can also uh, affect the wine in in more subtle ways it can um it, it can make a wine mute um almost you know remove the uh the aroma of a of a wine and that's that's kind of hard to detect sometimes you might have to be familiar with the wine and um you know if it's not very obvious but i suspect it at sometimes i uh, and the restaurant has a sommelier uh, who theoretically is is familiar with how these wines are supposed to be? I always like to get their second opinion. Um, but you know, the good news is that uh, twenty years ago, we kind of reached a, a an apogee in 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 the number of wines that were corked. I calculated that maybe uh, uh, 5% of the bottles that I opened up were, were flawed in, in some way because of the cork, which is, you know, really in, intolerable. Um, that's an in, enormous number. And um, uh, from that time when, when uh, the industries made a, a concerted effort to, uh, to reduce that number, either be either through uh, better quality corks or, 
um, you know, eliminating the, the need for bad corks in, in, in expensive wine by using screw caps. And so that number is, is way down today. Also some synthetic corks as well, which um, give the, yeah, the illusion. Yeah, the synthetic corks are less um, uh, satisfying. They're, you know, a rubber, I hate rubber corks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can never get it back into the, into the bottle. But there are, there are sort of, um, you know, other uh, uh, ways of doing it. You know, you can have a, a cork that might have a, a synthetic cork-like substance on, on the very end of, of, of the cork, the part that will come into contact with the wine that, that can protect the wine and, you know, other uh, uh, composite materials that that work pretty well but you know in, in whatever the case the the number of corked wines is is still uh far fewer than it than it used to be even so it's still incredibly annoying when you know especially if you've got it gotten a wine that you've been aging for you know 10 years or something like like that and you open it and it's corked uh, terrible you know, Eric, there's so much I'd like to talk to you about, and hopefully you'll come back and we can do it again. Uh, but uh, two things come to mind in this insanity of the last uh, year, 13 months. Yeah. How, how, is, how has COVID affected the wine industry overall, and then how has it affected your, uh, your work? Um, well, you know, mo- most obviously the, um, the shutdown of, of social life has made it you know, very much harder for, for people to, you know, drink wine in the way that we're all accustomed and then sort of a, a convivial um, restaurant going way. And, you know, in, in urban centers, particularly in a place like New York, the, the uh, virtual shutdown of the restaurant industry has been, um, you know, tremendously difficult uh, for, for wine. Um, restaurants, and, and in particular, uh, sommeliers are, are one of the most important ways of introducing people to, to new sorts of, of wines. And, and sommeliers are, are kind of the, you know, the educational um, uh, medium between uh, the wine industry and the, the consumer who can, you know, really explain or interest, inspire people, um, to try new sorts of wines without that, uh, intermediary, you know, people sort of revert to mostly to what they're familiar with. Oh, you have a, a, you know, some journalists like me who try to, to do that job as, as, as well. Um, and restaurants are also, you know, important customers for, for wineries, particularly, particularly small, uh, producers. So I worry that there's going to be, um, you know, a, a lot more consolidation in the wine industry as a result of, of this, pandemic. Um, you know, ha- as, as for how it's affected me personally, um, I, I have not been able to do the, the usual amount of travel that, that very much keeps me informed about what's going on in, in wine, um, to, 
to walk in in vineyards around the world to meet the people um, who are making the wine to to sort of immerse myself in in the culture of of wine producing areas um, is incredibly important just to to give some sort of understanding about um, uh, wine and what it's intended to express and 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 also you know keep me informed and and give me ideas for what to write about so it, it's a lot different just sitting at my at, at the desk in my apartment in New York and, and coming up with columns every week um, and finally, I, I'm now just recovering from, from COVID myself, um, which is not only, you know, physically challenging, but, uh, but affects me because, uh, as so ha- often ha- happens, um, I, my sense of smell was greatly diminished and, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm somebody who drinks wine every day, and I, I went uh, two and a half weeks without any wine, which, <laughs> you know, seemed like an eternity. Um, and right now I'm, I'm in the middle of doing what I need to do to regain uh, the full sense of smell. It never went away entirely, but, um, you know, you really have to retrain yourself um, by... Um, you know, just spending a fair amount of each day smelling a lot of different substances and 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 regaining that that full functionality. But the prognosis is good, I hope. Yeah, I I think it. You know, it comes back. Some some people, um, I I'm. It's coming back for me faster than it is for my wife, for example. Um, and and I'm I'm kind of in, encouraged by that, and I'm back to in, enjoying wine again, even if it's not um, as fully as I want it to be. But um, but I'll get there. Well, I'm sure you will, and I, I appreciate you taking the time to be with me today. And hopefully, at some point in the not too distant future, we'll sit across a table uh, here in Paris or at Lulu's uh, Domentampier and. Uh, drink a little wine. I look forward to that, Terrence. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure. Thank you for joining us, and please share your comments and suggestions at terrence at paris-expat.com. That's T-E-R-R-A-N-C-E at paris-expat.com. And visit paris-expat.com to sign up for my five weekly newsletters about the City of Light. Until next time, à bientôt à Paris.